Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Church Online. My name is Worth. If you are new, welcome and thank you for joining us. If not, welcome back. Uh, before we jump in here, just want to give you a few announcements regarding our community and what we've got going on, whether you are regular or have just discovered us for the first time. First, as we announced last week, we have strategically pivoted as a missional church to become a, a church community that meets both in homes and in large gatherings. If large gatherings are kind of like family reunions with our extended family, our house churches then, what we call our kinfolk groups, those can be described as immediate families. We think this fits our goal of being a family of Jesus followers that are seeking to be uh, formed into the image of Christ and to join God in the renewal of all things. So kinfolk groups meet together on Sunday mornings to watch the weekly sermon and discuss it and then eat, pray, celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion uh, together, and engage in local projects that help serve our community. The early church understood church to be a family, and we seek to embrace one another as family primarily through our kinfolk group approach, which we think offers rich opportunities to be deeply involved in the lives of other people here at West Seattle Christian Church. So we have groups comprised of different life stages and mixes, most meet in homes and sometimes parks or restaurants or on Zoom. We have one that meets each Sunday on our main campus in a family room setting in our social hall as well. So our upcoming schedule for kinfolk groups and larger community gatherings is on the front page of our website. And to get more details on, on how those work, uh, COVID regulations and protocols specific uh, or a specific kinfolk group and to sign up for one, check out that page on our website as well. Our second announcement, speaking of larger group gatherings, uh, is our next in-person wor in worship gathering on our campus right here in West Seattle. It, it's going to be on Sunday, September 26th. You don't have to sign up in advance anymore, but we are following all the safety guidelines and procedures given to us by state and local government due to COVID. Uh, and that includes masking up and social distance protocols. Our gatherings are created for one thing, and that is formation for mission. And we seek to be shaped in order to be sent out into our unique context, uh, specifically where you work, your neighborhood during the week. And each time we gather like this, we, we, we interact and we pray and we celebrate the life that comes through Jesus and we participate in communion together. And these times shape us into our God-given, Jesus-centered, spirit-saturated identity as the redeemed and renewed and called out people of God. So we invite you to join us and hope to see you there on September 26th. Uh, third, as part of our commitment to being like Jesus, we have been working on growing in racial justice and intercultural competence as a church family. Our last two book studies on Just Mercy and Be the Bridge were, they were really hard but um, fruitful work for us. And our next offering is to invite all of you to watch a screening of the movie The Hate You Give on Wednesday evening, September 29th, in our worship center from 6 to 9 p.m. Masks are required, will be socially distanced, but you can bring your own dinner and you can sit in family groups and eat at the beginning of the meal, kind of be socially distanced from everyone, and then we'll have a guided discussion afterwards. So I hope that you sign up for that on our website, and I hope to see you there. And as always, last but not least, if you are watching this on YouTube, do not forget to subscribe as well as hit the like icon below. This will really help out our channel and help us to reach more people here in West Seattle and beyond. All right, onward. Today, we're wrapping up our Genesis series. I can hardly believe it. Some of you are probably like, yes, 
I can't wait to introduce you to our next series next week as we tackle Paul's letter to the Galatians and what it really means to be free. And that's a really important word, free, freedom. And as an important topic to understand as Americans who live in the land of the free. And to put that word freedom in its proper context in the scriptures in and through the person of Jesus, we need to find out what Paul means by this freedom so that we can be shaped and formed by these words that he gives that church in Galatia. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But finishing up this Genesis series means we are also coming to the end of Joseph's story. And coming to the end of Joseph's story means we're finally wrapping up this mini narrative that is really like the prehistory, the introduction, the stage setup for what comes next in Exodus through Revelation, uh, the book of Genesis. It's the pre-story. So Genesis 1 through 11 was this preface where we meet this family of God, where we met Abraham and Isaac. And this is where we learned that God was building his family of trust and self-sacrifice and hospitality. And then later we saw this passion and fire, this drive and tenacity through the life of Jacob and also in Joseph. And then it seems like everything is just falling apart. But in these last few weeks, we see it all begin to come back together in this story of Joseph. So a few weeks ago, when we were talking about Jacob, we jumped forward to the end of the story. And at the end of his life, if you remember, when he's talking to Joseph about Joseph's kids, and the thing that Jacob seems to have learned is finally is some humility and that it's not all about him. Today, I want to start by going back to a few verses before that conversation that he had with Joseph, right at this deathbed scene where we already looked at how he adopts his half Egyptian grandsons into the family. I want to start right before that in Genesis 47 verse 28. Now, Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the, tri when the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. So, at the end of his life, Jacob calls Joseph to his side and asks him to promise to not bury him in Egypt. Now, when we think about Egypt, we probably think about, maybe you're thinking about pyramids, the Nile, maybe you're thinking about the plagues in Exodus. But what you probably haven't learned is that that image of Egypt was not what it was like when they got there. They, it says they lived in the land of Goshen. And here's the deal with Goshen. Goshen floods every year. The Nile brings... It, it's, its banks overflow, and then, they re, and then the water recedes, and it just leaves all this mud and silt everywhere. So that's the land that generous Pharaoh gives them to live in. But the cool thing about that is that that flooding creates these layers of topsoil. And in fact, uh, National Geographic did this article on topsoils around the globe uh, some years ago. Number one was the land of Goshen. And second and third place were actually located right here in the U.S. in the Great Plains in the Pacific Northwest, and it was something like four or six feet of topsoil here. Goshen had a hundred feet of farmable topsoil due to all that uh, flooding and receding of the rivers. So when Joseph's family gets to Egypt, Pharaoh gifts them this land because the Egyptians, they like to live in houses, which don't really do well with yearly floods. And this is, by the way, this is why everyone keeps going down to Egypt when there's 
famine because the Nile always floods, which means there's always food to be grown there. Instead of depending on water from rain to uh, produce crops, they have this river. So Egyptians don't want to build their houses and live in this part of the land, but the Israelites live in tents. So they're down with it. And Joseph and his brothers are not miserable in Egypt. They have it good. They have it real good. And, and Jacob says to Joseph, don't bury me here because this is not where our family story lies. Our story lies in Canaan. So let's look at what Joseph says. He says, I will do as you say. Verse 31, swear to me, he said. And then Joseph swore to him and Israel worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. And some of your translations might say, he knelt down at the head of the bed. And that's just a Hebrew idiom, a figure of speech, which means to pass the mantle of leadership onto the behor, the firstborn, which is the next person in line who's gonna take over um, the head of the family. So once Jacob is convinced that Joseph will not bury him, bury him in Egypt, he says, okay, then the family is yours and I'm ready, I'm finally ready to die. Now, what Jacob is really doing is he's pulling into Joseph's life a tension that's kind of been there throughout the whole story. So if we were to go back and summarize the Joseph story, there's a pattern that we see and it's important that you see it. So let's bring that, let's bring that out so we can look at it. Joseph's story begins with these dreams. His dad gives him a coat and gives him a prominent position in the family. So dreams, coat, prominent position. In the next phase of Joseph's life, that pattern is undone. It was dreams, coat, prominent position, and then he goes to his brothers and it becomes dreams, coat taken away from him and ripped to shreds, and then he's thrown in a pit. And then he's taken to Potiphar's house where Potiphar's wife is like, I got some dreams. And then she rips the coat off of him and he's thrown into a pit and into prison. So the pattern is kind of being ripped to shreds, it's being undone. And then while in prison, Pharaoh comes along and then what happens to the pattern? Pharaoh has a bunch of dreams, Joseph interprets them. Pharaoh gives him a coat and a prominent position in Egypt. And we said this before, but it seems now that Pharaoh is playing the role of Joseph's new father. And that's really important because when you and I read Genesis, we get all the backstory, but Joseph never had the backstory. He was living it in the present. He did not have a clue what was coming next. So because we know the backstory, we know that when the brothers take Joseph's coat, they're going to dip it in blood and they're going to give it to their dad, Jacob. And he goes, oh no, Joseph has died. But Joseph doesn't know any of that. So if you're Joseph sitting in the pit in the cistern, what are you thinking? My dad will come and get me. I'm his favorite. We are tight. This is no problem. I don't have anything to worry about. Then you get sold into slavery and you're thinking, I, but I'm sure my dad will come and find me. And then you're in Potiphar's house and now you're in a dungeon. And eventually you think, well, my dad isn't coming for me. My dad gave up on me. Or maybe even my dad was in on it. So forget that story. Forget him. I'm done with my dad. And so when Pharaoh comes along, by the way, this is not the Pharaoh of Exodus. This Pharaoh is a pretty good guy. The Pharaoh of the Exodus is a jerk. So this Pharaoh is good and he's generous and he brings peace to other people's chaos. He is not evil. So Pharaoh is stepping into this role in a good way. And it's, and it's all good until we get to, the la to last week's story where Joseph's family comes to visit him. In last week's story, Joseph finally realizes the truth that his dad didn't give up on him. 
his mind is blown and he, he wasn't, his dad was not part of the plot. In fact, his dad thought that he was dead. And now you have these two fathers, his real dad and Pharaoh. And he's asking the question, who is my real father? Is it Jacob with the promises and the calling of God in the land of Canaan? Or is it Pharaoh, king of G Egypt, who's providing everything during a famine? So let's go back to this passage in Genesis 44. And this is, this is about Judah. And remember, he's the guy who set up all the horrible stuff that happens to Joseph. And so when the brothers finally get to Egypt, Joseph orchestrates the whole silver cup in the sack deal so he can take Benjamin, his true brother, the only other son of his mom, Rachel, who wasn't part of the scheme that ruined Joseph's life. He's going to keep Benjamin. He's going to let the others leave. Maybe he's thinking he's going to reveal himself to Benjamin later on and be like, hey, hey, guess what? I'm really your brother. They did this to me or whatever. And Judah, out of nowhere, though, says some stuff that just shocks Joseph's socks off. And we covered this last week, but Judah is basically saying, I will take Benjamin's place. I will take the punishment myself. Put it on my shoulders. And Joseph's thinking, what the what? Why would you stand in for Benjamin? He's the other brother you don't like, the other son of Rachel. And you're the one who orchestrated my descent into slavery and hardship. What's interesting in that passage from last week is this scripture right here in Genesis 44, verse 33. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. So in Hebrew, in order for you and I to understand this better, you need to know that there is something going on audibly as you hear it in Hebrew. And the word for, so the word for father in Hebrew is av, and we've talked about the word be'av, the house of my father. The Hebrew word for misery is ra, and ra basically equals evil and misery. Now, the word for famine, and let's not forget that the whole story is about a famine. The word for famine in Hebrew is ra'av, ra'av. Now, Etymologically, it's not connected at all. And what I mean by that is, it's not like the word famine is a combination of the two words av and ra. It's not, it's not a combination of those. But audibly, I want you to realize this, that this entire narrative of Joseph is about avs and ras. Avs, ras, avs, ras, avs, ras. And you don't hear that as you read it in English, but to the Hebrew reader, this is jumping out like crazy. This whole story is about fathers and who is the ra'av. Who is the real father of misery? Who is the real evil father? Now watch, look at that verse again in Genesis 44, verse 34. How can I go back to my Av if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the Ra that would come on my Av. Now, let's take a look at Joseph's reaction to that. In verse 45, it says, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. This whole discussion about what his father knew and this newfound tension of, I thought I knew who my father was and now I'm having to rethink everything about who my dad was or who I think he is. And he totally breaks down because this is a very real, real-life tension. Who is going to be his true father? And there's going to come a point in the story where he has to choose. So 
Let's jump to the part where they bury Jacob, and I want you to listen to his final words. And this is in Genesis 49, verse 29. Then he gave them these instructions. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in, the Can in, in Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. Whoa. This is interesting. Who was the wife that he spent his whole life pining after? It was Rachel. So do you realize what he's saying here at the end of his life? His whole life, like nearly 100% of... Jacob's life. I'm pretty sure he'd want to be buried by Rachel. But now, now he gets it. Something has changed. So he says, bury, we, bury me with my father and my grandfather. And that's where I buried Leah too. Bury me there because that's this part of the story. That's the story I'm a part of. I'm a part of something bigger than just my own desires and schemes and angles. Verse 33 says, when Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Genesis 50 then begins, says, Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. And then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel, to which you should be going, wait, what? Do Israelites embalm people when they die? No. Nope on a rope. Egyptians embalm. What is going on here? I thought Joseph agreed not to bury him in Egypt. Why is Joseph directing these guys to embalm his dad? And I think that Joseph is simply just struggling here. He's saying, I am not sure I'm willing to give up my Egypt in the land of Goshen for your Canaan. And there's some rabbis that like to teach that Joseph is being intentional here. Like there's something he's up to because he's trying to engage the Egyptians in something that we're not really sure what that something is. But let's see how the story rolls on. So it says the physicians embalmed him. Verse 3, taken a full 40 days. For that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. 70 days! My gosh. Here's the deal. In Egypt, they didn't embalm everybody. You only embalm who? Like the royalty, pharaohs, high up officials. So it seems that they are treating Jacob like that for 70 days. All the showy, showiness stuff along with the mourning for Jacob. Verse 4 says, When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak uh, to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I'm about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, and then I will return. So this is a bit weird. If you're Jacob, you don't wait until after 70 days of embalming and mourning in Egypt, right about the time you're about to bury Jacob, and then be like, Oh, just kidding, excuse me, I actually made a promise to my dad, and I know you've done all this for me, but I want to go do this. So this is bad timing. You tell that stuff to Pharaoh before you do all this public stuff. So either Joseph is up to something intentional, or, you know, after 70 days of mourning, he's had a lot of time to think about his dad, and about his dad's legacy, about everything to do with his dad. And I think after these 70 days, he's like, man, I made a promise, and... I have to do the right thing. And so he went to Pharaoh and he asked him. Verse 6 says, Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. 
all Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household, only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. And what I want you to see there is that that sounds really familiar because, you know, are there going to be other stories where Pharaoh leaves Egypt with chariots and, hor and horsemen? It's kind of like a big wink, wink, hint, hint. Verse 10 says, When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. And that seven-day period is a Hebrew time of mourning. Verse 11 says, When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they, they said the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. Now, Watch what his brothers do at this point. In verse 15, it says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? I mean, really, don't you just love this? It's so, it's so real life. It's not, it's not like they bury Jacob and it's all happy, happy, joy, joy, and, we, and now we can move on. No, they bury Jacob and they're like, Now that dad's gone, what if Joseph comes back to get us? In verse 16, it says, So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. So FYI, I'm, I'm saying it like that because his brothers are lying through their teeth here to save their own skin. They just don't, they don't know what's coming. So it's like they're doing whatever they can to sway the outcome in their favor. Verse 17, This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the, of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Now, listen to what he says in reply to that and remember how much this group of guys has wronged him in the past. Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You, intend, you intended me to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and for your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. I mean, quite honestly, this is amazing. And I think it's the perfect place to begin to kind of wrap everything up with some important uh, implications from this story. And the first one is this. God's plan is always going to be a better investment and will always be available to you no matter how twisted and convoluted your decision or decisions have been. And I know this has been a broken record in Genesis. Like every week I'm like, look guys, it's never too late. You're never screwed up enough. No matter what you've done, God loves you. So let me, let me just say this. This must matter. Like God is really going out of his way in this story to communicate this fact that you can't do anything to separate you from his love. 
And I also know it's important because of my own life, and my, my family's life, and because of all the conversations I've had with people over the course of 20 plus years of ministry, somehow we are really good. At, we get so convinced that our, our story is the one that cannot be redeemed. And all I can say is that that is not true. I know some of you are thinking, it doesn't matter. I've just, I have blown it for 30, 40, 50 years. God, let me just say this to you. God has never canceled his invitation to you. It is still there for you. You might be, well, I, I rebelled against the invitation. I threw it all away. Yeah, but God never canceled his invitation to you and his calling on your life has never, ever changed. God doesn't keep a score sheet of how many mistakes you've made and how screwed up you got and say, man, I better, I better do something, do, change something here with this one. This one's a lost cause. No, he loves you. He loves you, period, forever, always, deeply, truly. The next implication is this. Others, others are going to often be scared of where the plan of God will lead you, where it will lead us. I want you to think of the brothers of Joseph. God's plan starts to come together and they're like, what if Joseph comes after us? When God starts to move, people will often be scared because where God is leading us is very often just uncomfortable and dangerous and it's hard work. And so many times people won't see it correctly. And because of that, they won't respond the way God would have them respond. Listen, Joseph is our guide here. Let him be our guide. He, he forgives them. Call them to take courage. What does Joseph say to his brothers? Essentially, get up off the floor. They throw themselves at his feet and they say, look, we're, we're your slaves. And Joseph's like, get up. That is not what God is doing here. What I want you to know is that there's going to be all kinds of people that won't understand what God's doing in your life, what God's doing in their life, in our lives, and in the world around us. And maybe they're totally missing it. Forgive them. Call them to take courage and learn how to lead. This is the kind of leadership that matters. I don't care whether you think you're a leader or not. These are the moments when you get to lead your family. You lead your children. You lead your spouses. You lead your coworkers. You lead others in your church family. When God is on the move and people are afraid and God gives you a glimpse and you get to say, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid because this is what God is doing. The third implication is this. There will be, very often be two narratives that seek to father our future. There's often going to be a, a father, a narrative that wants to father your future that will have these blinking lights that will say, go this way and everything's going to be great. There's going to be comfort and privilege and you can control the outcome. That is a lie. Don't go that way. Some of you might be saying, well, maybe the two paths are the same. Not very often. And that's just another way we try to manage our idolatry. It's the same thing the Israelites did. Maybe we can worship Adonai, God, and Baal at the same time. And God's like, nope. And I see this over and over again when people come to different crossroads in their life and they come to me to tell me what's up. A bunch of people and family and friends in their life are like, take the path that's safe. And what we should be saying to them is, take the path that's godly. There's often going to be two stories that want to father your future. And one says, this will be great for you. And the other says, you can make things great for others. And I want you to know that you can choose that father. Choose that father. Don't bury me in Egypt. Egypt is great. There will come a day when you will have to choose. There will come a day when you will have to choose between Jesus 
and whatever your own Pharaoh is, whatever that may be, choose Jesus. Last implication, know that your truest self and your most accurate identity, who God made you to be, is found in the calling that demonstrates the character of God. Listen to me, Joseph, he could have chosen Egypt, and I don't think he would have been immoral to do so, but neither would he have seized the calling that demonstrates the character of God to the world. Do not find your identity that, that leads to comfort, privilege, and control. We will sell our Jesus out over and over again to maintain that, those three things, comfort, privilege, and control. Those are the three idols that we love. It gets into our theology, into our church's philosophies of ministry. It gets into our marriages, into our parenting, just everywhere. We will do anything we can to maintain comfort, privilege, and control. If you really want to be challenged today, I want you to think about this. Whatever it is that you're struggling with, that you're in the midst of, or whatever conflict it is you're dealing with, at work, or with a friend, or in your marriage, or with your kids, I'm willing to bet it lies on one or all three of those things. I want control, I want comfort, I want privilege. Comfort? The way of Jesus says forget it because my way is dangerous and it's uncomfortable. Privilege? The way of Jesus says give it away for other people. And don't even get me, really, don't even get me going on freedom here in America as Christians. If you follow Jesus, you are free in Christ, yes, but you are a slave to Christ as well. You carry a cross. If you follow Jesus, you give up comfort, you give up privilege, you give up control in order to demonstrate the character and love of Jesus. And Jesus's character, it's selfless. It is self-sacrifice. It's hospitality in the extreme so that your enemies become your family. And finally, control. The way of Jesus says that the control we think we have is really a lie. It's just an illusion. The only one who has control is God himself. So anything that says you can have control, just forget it. It's a bad father. It's a ra'av. It, it, may, it may be good for you today, but not for tomorrow. And here's my problem. Maybe it's yours too. My problem is that I am guilty of bowing down to those three idols over and over and over again. Comfort, privilege, control. Thankfully, though, we can look to Jesus in communion every day. We can have can have the bread and the juice in our hands and we can be reminded that God's plan will always be a better investment and will always be available to us. I mean, I have bowed down far too often in my life to the idols of comfort and privilege and control, but God's invitation still stands in my life and it still stands in your life too. Lay it down. We have all sold out Jesus over and over again for comfort and control and privilege. God looks at me and he looks at you just like he looked at Peter and he says, do you love me? Do you love me? I know you denied me three times over and over again. But do you love me? That's all that matters. Feed my sheep. And you don't have to fix anything first. Do you love me? Okay, then. That is always available to you. Today is your reminder and your chance to come and confess that need to him. Until next time, I'm Worth Wheeler for West Seattle Christian Church Online. Stay rooted and deep in Jesus and produce good fruit, my friends.